It's 11 to 9. The world has gone mad. Here's the news. Rawlings takes Ghana by storm. Italian spy discovers Jupiter's sunglasses. And Spain forms miracle government. Plus, coming up, our special report on parsnips and why we should eat them naked. Those are the headlines. This is the end of news. News Bang, the voice of the unheard, shouting the truth. 1993. In a ceremony that was as extravagant as it was unnecessary, Jerry Rawlings, the man with the most famous moustache in Ghanaian politics, was today sworn in as President of the Fourth Republic of Ghana, the country which, as we all know, is named after the ancient Ghana Empire, an empire so big it had to have its lunch in Senegal. The inauguration took place in the capital, Accra de la Farte, where Rawlings vowed to bring democracy and freedom to the people of Dagbon. He then led a procession through the streets on a gold-plated elephant, showering them with cash and chocolate bars. One bystander, Chukwu Ayo, said, It's a great day for our nation. I've never seen so much free chocolate since Idi Amin's last barbecue. The ceremony was not without its hiccups, however. At one point, Rawlings got his trousers caught on a protruding democracy and mooned the crowd. But he regained his composure and continued to wave at his adoring subjects before retiring to his palace for some well-earned dictatorship. 1610. Let's go back in time to 1610 when Italian stargazer Galileo Galilei decided to spy on his neighbours. I mean observe the heavens. With his newfangled telescope, he spotted four moons shacking up with Jupiter. Yes, it was a celestial love pentagon that rocked the world of astronomy. The four moons in question were Io, a hot-headed minx who keeps losing her atmosphere. Europa, the pretty one who's always got something to hide under her icy surface. Ganymede, the beefcake of the bunch, and a satellite stud muffins can only dream of. And Callisto, the most distant of the group, but still calling all the shots. Galileo couldn't believe his luck as he peered through his lens at these celestial sirens. He even named them after some chap called Galilean and his mates, modesty personified. The Vatican wasn't impressed though and put him under house arrest for being too nosy. But as they say, what goes around comes around, or in this case, orbits around a gas giant. It took it 2020. After a record-breaking 253 days of political limbo, Spain has finally formed a coalition government. The new administration, led by Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez, took the oath of office today in Madrid's Quixote del La Mancha Palace. The last time Spain had such a long wait for a government was during the Second Spanish Republic, when Don Quixote and Sancho Panza couldn't agree on who should be in charge. The new cabinet consists of ministers from various parties, including the Socialist Workers' Party, Podemos, and the Pony Club of Andalusia. The latter are demanding more funding for equestrian sports and compulsory siestas for all Spaniards. However, not everyone is happy with the new government. Right-wing party Vox Populi Noxious have vowed to oppose the coalition at every turn. Their leader, Generalissimo Franco Nero, said, This is an affront to democracy. We will fight them on the beaches unless it's too hot. Mias buen sa. News Bang, a lighthouse in the storm of misinformation. Presenting the weather report, Shakanaka Giles.
Brr. It's a chilly start to the week. Tomorrow, we're expecting frosty conditions across the nation. So don't forget to wrap up warm. In the south, it'll be crisp and clear, just like biting into a fresh apple. But beware, the wind will be nipping at your nose, so pull up those scarves. The Midlands will be under a blanket of snow, as if the ground has been dusted with powdered sugar, perfect for snowball fights and snowmen building. The North is in for a cold one, with temperatures dropping to a shivering zero degrees. Make sure to defrost your car windows before setting off. In summary, frosty, crisp and snowy. And that's all the weather. Stay toasty, folks. Nineteen eighty-nine. In a twist that could very well redefine the Cold War's waning embers, 1989 has seen Iranian envoys extend an olive branch of sorts to Mikhail Gorbachev. Not just any branch, mind you, but one inscribed with an invitation to embrace Islam over communism. The missive from Khomeini predicts the Soviet bloc's unravelling, a forecast as bold as it is unexpected. Gorbachev, straddling ideologies like a political colossus, finds himself at a historic crossroads. For more on this diplomatic dance, we turn to Brian Bastable. In the bowels of hell, where shadows cling like cobwebs to the soot-stained walls, I, Brian Bastable, your combat scribe, report from the battlefield of ideas. Here, where two titans of thought collide, the air is charged with the electric hum of ideological combat. The Soviet bear, its paws once slick with the blood of a thousand revolutions, lies weakened and panting. It knows its days are numbered. And here at the vanguard of the assault is the Iranian lion, its mane bristling with righteous fury. Its roar, unbroken by the cacophony of the battlefield, is the clarion call to a new order. The world watches, breathless, as the Islamic revolutionary guerrillas, their hearts filled with divine fire, advance on the Kremlin. They are led by the great Ruhollah Khomeini, a man who has turned the tide of history with his unbending will. As I stand here, a casual observer in the maelstrom, I am struck by the sight of Abdullah Javadi Amoli, Mohammad Javad Larijani and Marzieh Hadidji the emissaries of the Iranian revolution. Their faces are like the sun, their words like the crack of a whip. As I drove here this morning, the clouds on the horizon were black. The clouds were carrying the portent of a day of doom. In their hands, they hold a letter, a manifesto of the new world order. It is a challenge to the old guard, a clarion call to arms for the oppressed. As the winds of change sweep across the battlefield, the Soviet bear once so feared is now a hunted beast. Its time is at an end. From the depths of hell, where shadows cling like cobwebs to the soot-stained walls, I, Brian Bastable, your combat scribe, report on the death of an empire. The end is nigh and the new world order is at hand. Brian Bastable, news bang somewhere in the depths of hell. 
2010. In a shocking incident, Muslim gunmen opened fire on a crowd of Coptic Christians in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, leaving eight worshippers dead following Christmas liturgy. This disturbing escalation of religious tensions has left the Middle East teetering on a precipice of uncertainty. And the fallout from the shooting of Coptic Christians in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, continues. For more on this, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit. Good evening, degenerates. We're taking a trip back to the year 2010, where the festive spirit was marred by a vile act of violence that left eight innocent souls dead in their tracks. In Nag Hammadi, Egypt, a group of Muslim gunmen opened fire on a crowd of Coptic Christians as they left church after attending Christmas liturgy. These animals thought they could get away with this heinous crime because of an alleged rape incident. But let me tell you something, folks. There's no excuse for this kind of barbaric behavior. Copts are the largest Christian denomination in Egypt and the Middle East, and they deserve to celebrate their faith without fear of being targeted by savages who hide behind religion as an excuse for their depravity. This attack was not just an assault on these individuals, it was an assault on humanity itself. It's time we put our foot down and said, enough is enough. We can't let these acts of terror go unpunished any longer. So let's stand together, folks, Christians, Muslims, Jews, atheists, whoever you are, and say that we won't tolerate this kind of violence anymore. Let's make sure that the memory of those eight innocent lives lost in Nag Hammadi is not forgotten. Because if we don't take a stand now, who will? This is Ken Shit signing off from Newsbang. Etiquette 2020. In a historic twist of political fate, Spain has emerged from a governmental drought lasting 253 days, stepping into the dawn of its first coalition government since the bygone era of the Second Spanish Republic. The nation, which had been treading water under a caretaker cabinet, now finds itself navigating the uncharted waters of coalition governance, a political odyssey not embarked upon since the tumultuous years from 1931 to 1939. For more on this seismic shift in Spanish politics, we turn to our correspondent, Hardiman Pesto. I'm here with the newly appointed Minister of Historical Affairs, Senorita Isabella Clueless. It's a pleasure, Hardiman. Pesto, tell us. How did Spain manage to go without a government for nearly a year? It was a period of intense political reflection, Martin. A time for Spaniards to really think about what they want from their tapas, so to speak. Tapas pesto? Yes, Martin, the political tapas. A little bit of this party, a little bit of that coalition, until they found the perfect recipe. And the historical significance of this coalition pesto? Well, it's been a long time coming, Martin. Since the Second Spanish Republic, to be exact. That's nearly a hundred years ago. Pesto, the Second Spanish Republic ended in 1939. Right you are, Martin. Just a slip of the tongue. Eighty-something years, give or take a few tapas. And Senorita Clueless, how does this coalition plan to address the pressing issues Spain faces today? We are committed to creating a government that reflects the diverse needs of our people, ensuring stability and progress for all Spaniards. Pesto, any insights on the coalition's priorities? They are very focused on the three E's, Martin, economy, education and elephants. Elephants, pesto? Yes, Martin, elephants in the room. The big issues that no one wants to talk about. And Senorita Clueless, your response to pesto's analysis? 
We certainly aim to address the big issues, though I assure you elephants are not part of our policy discussions. Pesto, have you actually spoken to any other members of the coalition? I've spoken to many shadows in the halls, Martin. They whisper of change and chorizo. Shadows and chorizo. Right. Well, Pesto, it seems you've given us food for thought, if nothing else. Thank you, Senorita Clueless, for enduring this exchange. It was certainly an experience, Martin. Pesto, please go find some actual politicians to talk to. And maybe lay off the tapas. 1948. In a tale that has taken a nosedive from the extraordinary into the realms of the classified, 1948 saw Air National Guard pilot Thomas Mantell tragically plummet to his demise. His last mission, an aerial pursuit of what was believed to be an unidentified flying object near Fort Knox, Kentucky. The plot thickens and then unthickens as it's later revealed that Mantell was not in a high-stakes game of cat and mouse with extraterrestrial life, but rather a top-secret skyhook balloon. For more on this story, we go over to Melody Wintergreen, who's standing by with her report. The skies over Fort Knox, a fortress of solitude, where today the heavens themselves seem to conspire in mystery and tragedy. Air National Guard pilot Thomas Mantell, a man with wings of wax, soared too close to the sun, or rather an unidentified flying object that sparked more than just curiosity. It's January 7, 1948, and the sky is a stage for a celestial chase that ends in earthly demise. Mantell, determined and dauntless, pursued what he believed to be visitors from another world. But alas, it was not E.T. phoning home, but a skyhook balloon calling his name, a top-secret project that turned this airman into Icarus. As Mantell's aircraft spiraled down like a fallen star to kiss the unforgiving ground, we are reminded that sometimes the truth is not out there, but right here before our very eyes, cloaked in government garb. And so we stand here at the crossroads of reality and myth, where one man's final flight blurs the line between man-made marvels and Martian mayhem. Thomas Mantell's legacy now drifts through time like the very balloon he chased. Once a harbinger of doom, now a footnote in the annals of aerial enigmas. This is Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang, Fort Knox, Kentucky. Newsbang, bringing truth to the forefront of the news. And now, Polly Beep, with a roundup of travel news from the past, present, and a bit of the surreality in between. Good evening, my fellow roadsters and sky sailors. Polly Beep here with your latest travel tidbits on this historical day of January the 7th. Let's cast our eyes to the skies and roads, shall we? Firstly, a tragic update from 2012 in Carterton, New Zealand. A hot air balloon has had a shocking encounter with a power line while attempting to land. The balloon, which is usually such a jolly sight against the blue yonder, turned into a harrowing inferno, claiming the lives of all 11 souls aboard. Our hearts go out to them as we remember this sombre event in aviation history. 
Switching gears to 1931, let's soar back in time and across the Tasman Sea with Australian aviator Guy Menzies. He bravely made the first solo trans-Tasman flight from Sydney to the rugged west coast of New Zealand. What a dashing display of daredevilry that must have been. So if you're stuck in traffic on the M5 near Sydney Airport today, just imagine taking off and conquering that vast stretch of water solo. Now for some current capers. There's been an uproar on the M1 as reports flood in that several sheep are staging a protest against wool prices by occupying Lane 3 near Sheffield. Expect delays as negotiations are underway. It seems they're demanding more than just a few bales of hay. And if you're cruising down the A30 towards Cornwall, beware of rogue surfboards hitching rides on car roofs. It appears they've caught wind of an incoming swell and are making their break for freedom. Lastly, Londoners be advised. Big Ben has decided it's time for a walkabout. The iconic clock tower is inching its way down Westminster Bridge. Pedestrians and motorists alike are advised to keep their distance lest they get tangled up in its timely escapades. That's all from me tonight. Keep your wheels turning and your spirits buoyant. This is Polly Beep saying mirror signal manoeuvre. Alessi's 1939. And now Calamity Prenderville is here to tell us about the birthday of a remarkable element. Tonight we're celebrating the birthdays of two remarkable elements. We're partying like it's 1939, the year Marguerite Perret, a French physicist and Marie Curie's protégé, discovered the element Francium. It's the second rarest naturally occurring element, only beaten by Aardvarkium, a British innovation that we're still trying to find. Francium is a highly radioactive alkali metal, which means it's as unstable as a drunken sailor on a tightrope. It has a half-life shorter than a mayfly's, making it as elusive as a British politician's promise. But don't let that deter you. Francium is a testament to British innovation, even if it was discovered by a French woman. Marguerite Perret, the woman behind the discovery, was the first female member of the French Académie des Sciences. She was a trailblazer, a woman who dared to challenge the status quo. So, here's to Francium, the element that's as rare as a unicorn's knob, and here's to Marguerite Perret, the woman who dared to dream. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Happy birthday, Francium and Marguerite. May you continue to inspire us with your radioactive brilliance. News bang. Boldly going where no news has gone before. Today, in 1782, the Bank of North America, the first chartered bank in the United States, unfurled its banners in Philadelphia. A veritable trailblazer, it took upon itself the mantle of the nation's first de facto central bank, deftly managing the currency and monetary policy. Fast forward to the present day, and central banks, armed with the authority to inflate the monetary base, stand as guardians of financial stability, wielding supervisory and regulatory powers. Perkins Stornoway now delves deeper into the intricacies of this story. The Bank of North America 
the first chartered bank in the United States, opened in Philadelphia in 1782. It served as the country's first de facto central bank and managed the currency and monetary policy. Central banks have the authority to increase the monetary base and often have supervisory and regulatory powers to ensure stability in the banking system. Today, dogger, slight or moderate. On this historic day, 40s, veering east, 3 or 4. The Bank of North America chopped off an eighth at 2.4. Shannon, south, veering southwest, 5 or 6. The U.S. financial system was a mere kitten at the time, Thames, light icy patches, and was not yet prepared for the global markets. Fastnet, southwest becoming cyclonic, 5 or 6. The pound's first trading session saw it standing tall as a medium Susan, Dover, slight or moderate, while the yen surged, Cromarty, east or northeast, three or four to a quite attractive popular flibberty gibbet by close of trading, Seoul, decreasing three or four, the mark resting on a dumpy, Fair Isle, fair. Trafalgar, fair, occasionally moderate. In summary, the Bank of North America, Hebrides, West, backing Southwest, four or five paved the way for the banking system we know today. The first chartered bank in the United States, a key player in the development of the global financial market. Business. The Dainzine Tatistin, a Sautatitan 55. In a historic moment that echoed through the hallowed halls of American opera, Marian Anderson, an African-American contralto, shattered barriers by gracing the stage of the Metropolitan Opera in New York. A career brimming with resounding success saw her collaborate with esteemed orchestras both in the US and Europe. Her rich contralto voice reverberating in concert halls and captivating audiences. Here's more on this groundbreaking event from our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, my little culture vultures. It's your girl, Smithsonian Moss, and I am absolutely buzzing to bring you the latest and greatest in culture news. Today, we're taking a trip back in time to the year 1955, when Marian Anderson, a badass African-American contralto, broke down barriers and became the first black lady to perform with the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. That's right, folks. We're talking about the OG diva who was like, Hey, white people, I'm here to sing my heart out and you're going to like it. Now let me tell you, Marian Anderson was no joke. She had a voice that could make the angels weep, and she was like, the Beyonce of her time. But, you know, without all the crazy outfits and Instagram followers. So Marian Anderson was like, Hey, Metropolitan Opera, I'm here to kick some serious ass and take some names. And let me tell you, she did not disappoint. She was like the Mary J. Blige of her time, but with a way better dress sense. But you know what the real tea is? The Metropolitan Opera was like, Hey, Marian Anderson, we're not sure if we want to let you perform here because you're black and all. But Marian Anderson was like, Hey, Metropolitan Opera, I'm going to make you eat your words and sing my heart out, and you're going to like it. And let me tell you, she did just that. She was like, the Aretha Franklin of her time, but with a way better dress sense. She was like, 
the Whitney Houston of her time, but with a way better dress sense. She was like the Tina Turner of her time, but with a way better dress sense. So, there you have it, my little culture vultures. Marian Anderson was like the ultimate boss lady of her time, and she broke down barriers and paved the way for other black artists to follow in her footsteps. And let me tell you, she did it all with a voice that could make the angels weep and a dress sense that was like the ultimate in high fashion. So, let's all raise a glass to Marian Anderson, the OG diva who was like, hey white people, I'm here to sing my heart out and you're going to like it. And let's all remember that, even in the face of adversity, we can all achieve greatness and make our mark on the world. That's all for now, my little culture vultures. Keep it locked on Newsbang for more culture updates. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow for our special report on whether we're alone in the universe. Wahoo! Newsbang. Uncovering the hidden in the plain sight of truth. And now for the final roundup. The Times. Washington delivers State of the Union address. The Telegraph. Five missionaries killed by Huarani. The Independent. Wilson announces 14 points for peace. And that's it. It's time for me to go. But before I do, I'd like to leave you with this thought. If you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the people he gave it to. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.